Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This week, Nikki Haley, America's ambassador to the United Nations, made a surprise announcement. She was leaving her job. As rumors swirled on social media, she announced her decision with a press conference in the Oval Office, sitting next to President Trump. In the wake of this news, praise for Ambassador Haley poured in from both pro-Trump and anti-Trump factions of the Republican Party, from Democratic senators, and from the president himself. Also flowing freely was conjecture about what would come next for the former governor of South Carolina and where her next political steps would take her. Joining us this week is Ron Campius, the Washington bureau chief of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, or JTA, who has covered the Jewish angle to all capital-related news for the last 15 years. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ambassador Nikki Haley made defending Israel against bias a central focus of her time at the UN. How successful was she on that front? I think she was objectively successful, uh, and you could see that the most um, uh, uh, pronounced manifestation of that, I think, was the fact that uh, after she vetoed uh, the resolution criticizing the move to uh, to recognize Israel's uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital, um, and so then you know of course the people who were advancing that took it to the General Assembly, and she managed to get 64 countries to uh, you know, either vote against the resolution or to abstain, and that's a substantial por- proportion of uh, I think it's 185 or 190 countries there, and I and it's almost uh, unprecedented. So she was able to. To use her leverage behind the scenes to uh, to to really make it uh, seem that you know you you could not get away with bashing Israel. Not that her predecessors allowed people to get away with bashing Israel, but it really became like a red line for this administration. Do you think that she leaves any kind of a legacy on that front? Like, is is the UN a changed body for her having been there for the past two years? I think it'll take more than two years to change the UN. <laughs> I mean, it's still what it is. Uh, you've got like. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, what's emblematic and uh, about the UN is that the UN Human Rights Council uh, is still dominated by human rights abusers, and and that's the uh, that's the nature of the UN. The value of the UN is simply to have a body in which you can sort of quickly address uh, crises as they arise and maybe for, uh, form coalitions, but to radically reform it and to make it a bastion of democracy, that's going to take a long time. <laughs> There are a lot of theories as to why this uh, darling of the pro-Israel camp here in America, why she chose to step down now. Do you have a, uh, a pet theory? Uh, you know, I, I always try and go like uh, with, with Occam's razor, with the obvious theory in, this, in the ca- these cases when people step down. And she, was, she said she was exhausted after eight years of public service. She really was a very busy and involved governor of South Carolina, and she really was uh, deeply involved uh, in the U.N. And it's, uh, the, the other thing is that a lot of these jobs are actually draining on one's finances. And uh, she reportedly, she and her husband are in debt, and it's time to get out and figure out a way to make money and then maybe go back into public service. In that light, what do you think are the next steps for her? Is she someone who we could be talking about as the first woman president? Oh, I, I think for sure. It's like she's up there. She's, uh, you know, she's counted out like, uh, you know, what are the, uh, one of the weird things about her resignation? I, I don't think her resignation per se is weird. The fact that she put in her letter, I will not run in 2020 is very weird. Who 
<laughs> what public servant has ever put a non-complete clause in their, <laughs> in their resignation? And two years is a long time. A lot of things could happen then. She might be back by 2020. She might uh, want to stay in the private sector until 2024. She's young. But I think we're definitely going to see her come back into the, uh, into the electoral field. Ron, I'd be remiss not to ask you some political questions with the midterms coming up. I'm sure you saw this week's New York Times article about Democratic newcomers and their willingness to oppose the U.S.-Israel relationship in Congress. What do you make of rumors of a blue wave in November, and what would that outcome mean for Israel? Uh, I think that the um, the House is definitely up for grabs for the Democrats. The Senate's going to be a much harder climb for them. But uh, but the immediate impact uh, for um, for Israel is simply that the uh, I don't think there is much of an impact. A lot of the the focus of the uh, of the House in its first months are going to be on the uh, uh, on opposing the Trump administration. Uh, a lot more oversight. It's going to be it's going to be scandal intensive, and a lot of that stuff doesn't repercuss onto Israel so much. And I think Israel, I think that uh, the New York Times story was a little bit overstated. I think certainly there are trends that have to be watched in the Democratic Party that people are watching. Uh, you're getting, and you also have a cooler relationship with the Netanyahu government because of the tensions between uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Barack Obama during the Obama administration. But you've still got a solid, solid uh, pro-Israel contingent in the in the party, in the party leadership, uh, in in both chambers. Uh, you know, Senator Chuck Schumer is probably second to none in his defense of Israel, and Nancy Pelosi has very strong ties with the uh, with the pro-Israel community. Although, yeah, you know, and she's been critical in the past, but then so have uh, have others in the Democrat. I don't think it would presage as much, at least in the next two years, for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Well, over the past several years, we've seen these trends in the Democratic Party that haven't quite hit elected positions, right? And so when there's been a fairly non-contentious issue around Israel in Congress, we see these kind of, you know, 99 to 1 votes in the Senate or 433 to 2 in the House or something like that. But with some of these newcomers, you know, Ilhan Omar plus uh, Rashida Tlaib, plus uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that begins to look like the basis for a caucus in the House. You know, is, is that something that people should be keeping their eyes on? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is something to, that we should be keeping our eyes on. The question is, does that become like a, a substantive caucus in the House, or does it become a... Um, uh, you know, the kind of the, the marginal uh, wings of both parties that have existed in the past, like the isolationists in the Republican Party that persisted through the uh, through the 1980s. that really didn't really add up to a lot. I don't know. It's 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 hard to say how influence uh, how influential they are. A lot depends on um, on cultivating ties between the American left and Israel. And there are efforts towards that. And a lot depends on, you know, the flexibility of what one considers pro pro-Israel to be. I mean, what was interesting to me with the whole Rashida Tlaib uh, incident was that, you know, once she came out and she was in favor of one state, uh, J Street immediately unendorsed her and said, we can't have anything to do with her. And there was actually surprise on the left. The left wing was saying, J Street, how could you do this to this wonderful, nice woman who's going to be such a great congresswoman? <laughs> I think it's like a, you ha- there has to be like, it has to, a, a case has to ma- be made st- more strongly to the left that there are certain red lines that cannot be crossed with the uh, with the American Jewish community. 
Ron, what do you think of those who kind of wistfully look backward in time and suggest that there once was a period where when confronted with someone who held views oppositional to that of the Jewish mainstream, Jewish organizations would really rally and and do everything they could to help bring that elected official around to seeing things the right way, whereas now there's much more of a rush toward the angry press release, the injudicious tweet. Have you noticed that trend? Oh, I think so for for sure, and I think that uh, uh, you know the the mainstream organizations like uh, the American Jewish Committee, the Anti Defamation League, APAC, they continue to be a lot more cautious. They're not uh, uh, they're not playing that game yet. But it's uh, but the the but then you, you, the social media field field is definitely filled with people who are who are playing that game, and we tend to focus more on outrage and the outrageous tweet than we do on the uh, uh, on the uh, on the more cautious. Uh, uh, approach and so you know you mentioned Ilhan Omar for for instance and the crazy things that she's said in the past. Um, I think that there have been representations from Minnesota's Jewish community to her, to, to her, and so when she was in a debate uh, and somebody she, somebody asked her about BDS, she said that uh, you know she took the typical centrist democratic position that she she opposes penalties for BDS, but she does not endorse the movement. She opposes the movement as counterproductive. And so that was an interesting. I think that was uh, that was an example of old school, <laughs> the, the old school that you described. Yeah, I, I, I mean, do, do you think that is this just an age of outrage, and that's why people are kind of departing from that old school, or is there something new afoot? Uh, I, I think it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely an, uh, an age uh, of outrage, and uh, the question is, how, you know, what are the modalities you set up within an, an instant communication and an instant opining culture? To, to moderate that and to uh, to modify that. I mean, there was like there's a lot of ang- angst going on in certain quarters because of what completely unrelatedly to Israel. What, but what happened with the Kavanaugh hearings, where each side was accusing the other uh, of being the devil and not leaving any uh, not leaving any room for subtlety and not leaving any room for accommodating a a, a, a posture in which perhaps um, advocates of both people of both the uh, Judge Kavanaugh and of his accuser, Christine Ford, could come together and figure out a, a, a way through. Uh, you saw that in the, uh, you know, in, in the very um, angsty uh, reactions of, uh, of the, 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 the senators who were at the center of that, but they seemed lonelier than before. So I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how you, you, you fix that. Ron, you're also currently writing bios for JTA of all of the Jewish candidates for Congress. Who right. is the Jewiest candidate you've come across? <laughs> <laughs> Am I not I supposed to use that be, word? <laughs> <laughs> Among the, um, you know, I would probably be an incumbent. It would probably be Nita Lowy, who has uh, a background in uh, Jewish organizational work and who, yeah, I think she, she was a member of Hadassah, of, a, of the National Council of Jewish Women before she uh, came into Congress. Uh, that would be definitely be up there. Somebody like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who came, who came out of the National Jewish Democratic Committee back in the day, and who's, uh, who's I mean, I just remember with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she was like universally her, now she's kind of like a, in recession, but her first couple of years were astonishing. People were saying, here's this young woman in her 30s, and she's already a deputy whip in her first term. And she's uh, she's doing all these things, and she's going to rise to the leadership, which she eventually did. So I went to her 
party for like a, not so much victory, but their first day in Congress party, which all members of Congress do with the new term. And I went to all a lot of the Jewish candidates, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She had a kosher buffet, first of all, <laughs> the only one who had a kosher buffet. And the wall was plastered with what she called, what considered to be her significant accomplishment after all that, which was uh, the law that established Jewish American Heritage Month. So, yeah, huh. I would say, you know, her, she, she definitely qualifies. You know, I'm, I'm based in New York, and here we take kosher buffets a little bit for granted. But in Washington, that's a little harder to pull off. Yeah, it was, um, it was funny because there was uh, in the same building, and, you know, you get the um, you get your office by according how you know by rank, and so Debbie Wasserman Schultz had her office on the first floor, which showed like how uh, how far she'd already come. And so then I climbed all five story, stories to Paul Hodes's office. He was a freshman Jewish senator, sorry, congressman from uh, New Hampshire. And I walk in and they're having a pork barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> what a contrast. <laughs> but you know, New Hampshire, they do things differently there. What about some of the, the most surprising Jewish stories that you've uncovered so far? Well, it's just like, you know, they're such interesting candidates. Some of them are really long shots, but they, they're kind of uh, interesting. There's this one guy um, who's running in, I, I think, against Carolyn Maloney. I'm not sure. He, anyways, he's running in Manhattan. He's a Republican. His name is Elliot Rabin, you know, and he believes in, uh, he's from the, he's from the South. He's Jewish, but he's from South Carolina. He went to the Citadel and he served in the army. Uh, and, uh, now he, he works at like a, at a high-end boutique in Manhattan and he talks about gun control. He's almost like a throwback to the, um, uh, you know, to the old Rockefeller Republicans that you thought were dead, but he's not going to win, so it almost doesn't matter. But it was still interesting to see this, uh, that, this, uh, uh, that this guy um, uh, was, still, uh, was still persisting in that case. And then, uh, you know, there's also uh, Gary Trauner, who's this Jewish guy in Wyoming who keeps on winning Democratic nominations and, and losing the, the elections because Wyoming is the reddest state in the country. And he's interesting <laughs> because when I first met him, he was running for the House in the mid-2000s, and he actually nearly won it in 2006. He told me he literally walked across the state. I mean, I'm sure he drove from town to town, is what he <laughs> meant, and knocked on almost every door. He said, I've knocked on two-thirds of the doors in the state. So that's, you know, that was also kind of interesting. And then, of course, in perhaps one of the closest watch Senate races anywhere in the country, there's Jackie Rosen versus Dean Heller, former synagogue president Jackie Rosen. That's right. She is that uh, as Shelley Berkeley, uh, who, uh, who who ran against uh, Dean Heller uh, six years ago, put it: "If you can be president of the synagogue, you can be president of the United States of America." <laughs> and uh, it is a fairly it's a it's a big synagogue in uh, in Henderson, which is a suburb of uh, of Las Vegas. It has a substantial Jewish community. I'm sure the politics there were probably very hard for her to navigate. Maybe it was, maybe <laughs> going for the Senate seems like it would be a relief from that. <laughs> well, uh, now's as good a time as any for me to add that as a 501c3 not-for-profit organization, AJC neither, uh, endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. Uh, but Ron, what, what do you think? Is the, uh, is the number of Jews in Congress going to grow in November? Yeah, I think so, because I think because there are, uh, first of all, I don't see any incumbent uh, losing, although, well, you know, three are retiring, including Jackie Rosen, but I don't see any of the other incumbents losing. And I think that there are a number of challengers who are probably, um, who are probably going to win. Um, in in uh, there's a God, what's her first name? There's a Balter in upstate New York who's uh, who's who's got a good chance. Perhaps Max Rosen's uh, in uh, in Staten Island. Oh, definitely Elaine Luria in uh, Virginia Beach, Norfolk. I mean, this is one of the interesting things is how many 
candidates, first of all, are veterans, and how many of them are Jewish? Uh, you know, because we have this, uh, you know, we don't usually associate Jews with military service, but yeah, here you go, like a number of the uh, candidates, like Max Rose came out of, the, I think, the Army. Elaine Luria was a Navy commander before she uh, retired and decided she wanted to uh, run for Congress, and there, um, there are a couple of others. So, yeah, I think it's overall it's probably going to grow a little bit. It strikes me that most of the people you're naming are Democrats. Yeah, yeah, there, there is... Um, I'd say among the Republican challengers, uh, there is one that could be viable. That's Elena Epstein, who is a businesswoman in uh, in Michigan. It's a community that still votes overwhelmingly Democrat, 65 to 70 percent in a given election. So the uh, the, the people who are going to be, you know, do the hard work of being candidates and running for office are probably going to be Democrats as well. Well, we'll see. Perhaps the uh, Congress will have its largest kiddish club yet. <laughs> Ron, thank you so much for uh, joining us and for sharing your expertise. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. In November of 2016, just days after the presidential election, AJC partnered with the Islamic Society of North America, or ISNA, and convened the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. Together. This impressive group of Jewish and Muslim business leaders, community leaders, and religious leaders joined forces to advance legislation against hate crimes. This past week saw a major victory for MJAC. Joining us to tell us more is Rabbi Noam Marins, AJC's Director of Interreligious and Intergroup Relations. Noam, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be with you, Sefi. A big piece of hate crime legislation was just signed into law by President Trump. What should our audience know about the Religiously Affiliated Institutions Act? Why was this bill needed? And what was its genesis? This is a very important piece of legislation that was urged by the Department of Justice and supported in a bipartisan way. Uh, It is called the Protecting Religiously Affiliated Institutions Act of 2018, It expands the definition of prosecutable hate crimes to include not only houses of worship, but affiliated religious institutions like schools and community centers. And it expands the prosecution on a federal level to threats against those institutions, even if they did not result in acts of violence. So... No, um, both Muslims and Jews recently have experienced this kind of spate of vandalisms, of, you know, hateful graffiti, things like that, on places that are not quite religious buildings under previous definitions, right? So previous law might have certainly had special protections for a synagogue or for a mosque, but this law actually expands that. There are three general reasons why this law became particularly important. First, we experienced threats against Jewish community centers. Those threats may not have been covered by previous laws, but it wasn't only those institutions. It was institutions affiliated with not only the Jewish people, but Muslim people and other people of faith as well. Second, there has been a dramatic increase in reported hate crimes that are religiously motivated. 
According to the latest FBI report issued in 2007, hate crimes increased by 4.6% in 2016 compared to 2015. Those are religiously motivated hate crimes. So specifically on the religiously motivated hate crimes, anti-Jewish incidents continue to account for the majority of religious-based hate crimes, while incidents targeting Muslims rose nearly 20% over 2015. Wow. And the third piece, and this is related to the initiative of AJC and its co-convener, ISNA, the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, embraced this project as key because both Jews and Muslims, as minority groups within America, have a joint commitment to protecting all faiths in the free expression of their beliefs. It was the central achievement of this nascent Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. The legislation passed overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. Do you think that that would have been possible without the driving force of MJAC, of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, banding together to push for it? Muslim Jewish Advisory Council has been meticulous in its embrace of a bipartisan approach. The legislation was initiated by both Democrats and Republicans within both houses of the legislature and was quickly and easily signed into law by the president. It's hard to imagine that that would have happened without a bipartisan effort that has been a cardinal principle of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. Noam, you've been a part of a lot of these meetings where uh, members of the council, uh, you know, Jewish and Muslim community leaders, business leaders, have met with members of Congress to push for this legislation. Do you ever get kind of like a like an amused reaction from the member who says, you know, I'm used to seeing Jews in my office and I'm used to seeing Muslims in my office, but maybe not together, maybe not pushing toward the same outcome? I'm not a historian of lobbying, <laughs> but I find it hard to believe that there have been many times when Muslims and Jews have lobbied together. This is historic. It may be unprecedented. I do not know. But it is certainly dramatic to see national Muslim and Jewish leaders walking the halls of Congress together to lobby in a shared interest behind essential legislation to protect faith institutions in the United States. With this first great victory to its name, what is next for MJAC? Can you give us a little bit of a hint of the next goal for the council? It's a great challenge for this council to continue to surprise with incredible accomplishments. <laughs> After such a successful run, nonetheless, uh, it's important to report that uh, during the last year, as MJAC expanded, the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council expanded, we now have eight regional councils, and we're hoping to expand relatively quickly to 12 regional councils. There is great interest throughout the 22 offices of AJC to find local models that not necessarily replicate, but exist in parallel with different approaches to Muslim-Jewish relations to complement the achievements of the Muslim-Jewish Advisory Council. 
We're also considering how to send public messages to the American people about the existence of this and what it means, why Muslims and Jews are working together in this way. That's on the table for discussion during our forthcoming retreat, the second annual Muslim Jewish Advisory Council retreat. And as you allude, the National Muslim Jewish Advisory Council will be meeting this weekend for their second annual retreat, and we'll be watching eagerly for any news that may come out of uh, that and, and future meetings. Noam, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Construction. Good for the Jews? The most vaunted Jewish construction projects were probably Noah's Ark and Solomon's Temple, and the more recent of those, the Temple, was built around 3,000 years ago. Look, we're the people of the book, not the people of the hammer and nails, you know? So why would construction be good for the Jews? Well, this week, the story of a non-Jewish construction worker came into my Twitter feed, and I knew I had to tell Roland's story. Roland, a 54-year-old German house painter, is not Jewish. But for each of the past five years, he has taken off work and flown from his home in southern Germany to Israel for weeks at a time. Upon touching down in Tel Aviv, Roland meets up with other German workers and travels the country, performing upkeep and renovations on the homes of Holocaust survivors. There are 200,000 Holocaust survivors in Israel, and a third of them live below the poverty line. Roland and his German friends offer their services free of charge, all to prove, perhaps to the survivors, perhaps to Israel, perhaps to themselves, that the Germans of today are not the same as the ones from 70 years ago. Famously, many German Jews who survived the Holocaust have refused to speak the German language ever since, preferring Yiddish or ultimately Hebrew or English. But Roland says that as he works, some of his elderly clients slip into the mother tongue that they have hated for the past 70 years. We'll include a link to Roland's story in the show notes so you can read it and see for yourself that construction really is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.